Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. I sort of went into this despair. I was really dysfunctional for a long time and then the first thought that got me out of that dysfunction was, well, have I given up hope? And when I realised that I hadn't, then I just realised that I just had to focus on, well, what do I do? And I had to just do everything I could and that sort of lifted me out of the despair but then there was this real thing of like, well, what the hell can I do? Hey, it's Adam Murray here. Thanks for listening in. Two topics this week converge in a way that I hadn't really understood how they fitted together before. Grief and climate change. They're two things that I've heard about and seen workshops on, but I couldn't really get why that was a thing. Climate change was something I rationally understood, but emotionally it hadn't really affected me. And that was till I went to the Wheeler Centre, a great place in Melbourne, for hearing about ideas. And I listened to this week's guest. And there was something about the way she talked about climate change and what the reality of it meant that hit home for the first time. And I experienced a sense of grief and real concern. Her name is Katerina Gator, and she went through her own process of grief much earlier in life than I did. And after working through that, decided that she wanted to do something about it. And that's currently through an organisation called A Climate for Change. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for listening to The Subtle Disruption of Purposeful Conversation. Kat, it's really good to be chatting with you today. Do you mind telling us where you've chosen for our conversation? Well, I chose our office which I do like being in, but it was also just very convenient for me. And I thought we had a great little room that we could chat in, but I forgot to book it. (laughs) (laughs) So we've ended up in the dungeon, (laughs) in the basement boardroom, which has a lot of charm and character, but is a bit, yeah, a bit like a dungeon. It has a really big, heavy sliding door and columns and arches and... It's a very interesting space. It's got all those cobwebs <laughs> in those dungeons. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a with. nice space, but it is unusual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is a pretty amazing building. Well, the building's very cool in itself, but yeah. also, I guess, the intent behind this yeah. building. Yeah. Can you tell really us a bit nice. about that? I'm probably not going to do it justice. I know it was bought by a couple of philanthropists quite a while ago as a place to house not-for-profits and social enterprises. Um, so that they could really to enable them to do good work. It's sort of one of those things that isn't often thought about, but when you're running a not-for-profit or a a social enterprise, you need a space, and it's often hard to come by spaces that are affordable and also meet your needs. And and particularly for us, I think, because we are volunteer-powered as an organisation and we have, you know, over 100 volunteers working with us, they're all over Melbourne and even outside of Melbourne we really need to be somewhere fairly easy to get to which in the way that Melbourne's laid out means being pretty much in the CBD Um, and as you can imagine it's pretty hard to find affordable real estate in the CBD so we're really lucky to be able to yeah have a space that is that yeah affordable for us right in the heart of the city and has space for us to have volunteers and do trainings and it's also it's a co-working space and it's a co-working space for not-for-profits working on progressive issues. Mm. So we're basically in a room full of people doing really great stuff, often having wins, which is really exciting. We yeah. get to celebrate with them. Yeah, we get to learn from them and just share our experience. So, yeah, it's really great. Yeah, I guess there's a like a dual challenge there. Like it's often very hard being 
a small business, particularly if it's like just a few people working, you can feel quite isolated. And then I guess it's also an additional challenge of being a not-for-profit can feel quite isolating as well. So to have like a community that's mm. ready-made here must yeah. be pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I think when you're doing, I mean, all of us, you know, no matter what issue we're working on, it's great, it's really meaningful work, but it can be really hard as well. Mm. You know, the challenges we face can be overwhelming and um, disheartening at times and I think to be amongst people who sort of get that and feel that way yeah really um, helps keep one's spirits up as well yeah um, yeah yeah we'll get into a bit of that yeah. in a minute <laughs> just as a side note and we've already talked about it where I'm excited because the company I work for is going to move into this building as well like yeah a, that's so cool we're going to be neighbors <laughs> yeah so we kind of met I first came in contact with you through the Wheeler Centre where you were giving a talk. What was the title of that talk again? It was, so it was a conversation that I had with my dad, who's a moral philosopher. Yeah. But it was around sort of a philosopher and an activist, how we both approach climate change and how we've influenced one another yeah. in that. I think the conversation title was something around a climate for change, but I didn't come up with it, so I didn't really remember it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was actually my first event at the Wheeler Centre. I think I've been looking for quite a while for a place that does really good talks, and then I heard mm. someone talking about it and stumbled across it. So I was a bit surprised I hadn't heard about it for yeah, a long time. Yeah, like we're really lucky to have it in Melbourne. Yeah. Like almost every day there's something you could go to that's really interesting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they're... I guess one of the interesting things I found about the one or two that I've been to, like they're quite short and punchy as well. Mm. Like it's you can do it on a in the middle of the week and yeah. it doesn't destroy you for the next day. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I was sitting in the audience and I think I was listening to the way you were talking about you're quantifying some of the things that are happening in terms of climate change. Mm. And for some reason, you know, I'm aware of climate change and that kind of thing, but it had quite an impact on me. And uh, it made me think about a talk that I didn't go to, but it was about people coming together to grieve for mm. the planet. Yeah. And I, I didn't quite get that when I, I heard about that talk, but I think for the first time I kind of got it. And yeah. I got home that night and I was like, oh, my gosh, like what have we done here? Yeah. Like we've done such long-lasting perhaps irreparable damage, this is terrible. And uh, I don't know, there's something about the way you talked about that that really conveyed that. So I guess maybe I want to explore that a little bit today. Uh, like, where the pressure's on to do it again. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, do you want me to sort of try and yeah. recap? I, so I think what you're referring to is my dad asked me to sort of just go through some of the things that are the given facts that we were going to assume for the, well, not assume, they're pretty well established, but, you know, yeah. you know, we're going to form the basis of our conversation. And I think I started by sort of talking about what, so we often, I think at the moment, particularly the International Panel on Climate Change has released a report around 1.5 degrees. And I think, you know, people may be vaguely aware that there are these numbers out there, 1.5, 2 degrees, but that feels so meaningless unless you really grasp what those mean. It doesn't sound like much, to be yeah. honest. So I think I started with that. And you know, basically the situation is that since pre-industrial times when human beings started mainly burning fossil fuels but also sort of just clearing the land at a much faster rate because we had machinery powered by fossil fuels to do that yeah. and producing a lot more waste, all of which put greenhouse gases into our atmosphere. Our planet has warmed by one degree, or depends where exactly you measure it from, but around one degree. We have already also put enough greenhouse gases in our atmosphere to add between sort of point two and 0.3 potentially yeah. um, degrees onto that. It is possible we've actually already got to the 1.5 um, just through what's already in our atmosphere. Two degrees was originally a number that was sort of put out there as sort of the, the maximum safe level to warm, but there's now a lot of debate around 
two degrees isn't really safe. I mean, two degrees would mean there are no more tropical coral reefs in the world. The Great Barrier Reef would be gone. Even at 1.5 degrees, they're expecting 80 to 90% of it to be destroyed. So it's pretty much... The the reef as we know it is is now condemned. It's just whether we can salvage enough of it that over the long term it will recover. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe there are people looking into technologies or sort of ways of regrowing reef and sort of doing sort of miraculous things. You've sort of got to hope, but, yeah, yeah, we don't really know what would come of that. Um, And I'm sure there'd still be a whole lot of unintended consequences from playing God in that way. Two degrees would mean that the Greenland ice sheet would have passed its tipping point, which means that it will eventually all melt. There'll be nothing we can do to sort of... That that process will have sort of reached a point where it can't sort of stop or go backwards, which would, I think, result in about a seven-metre sea level rise, which would mean that all Pacific islands, um, sort of low-lying Pacific islands... Bangladesh, Bay of Bengal, sort of those areas would be inundated and a lot of cities around the world are at low levels and even if they're not completely there, when you think about infrastructure systems, like just I think what really hit home for me when someone explained to me that most of our sewage systems, like that would just play havoc with sewage systems in most coastal cities, like that would just cause immediate troubles. Like we, we yeah. sort of just don't realise how actually fragile <laughs> the, 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 the cities are. we live in yeah. and the systems are. That melting, it's, scientists don't really know how quickly it could occur. So although at two degrees, which we're currently due to reach before 2050, although that will be sort of um, put in place, we don't know whether that will happen over sort of before the end of the century or over 100 years or 200 years or even 1,000 years, but yeah. we sort of know that that is it's sort of inevitable at that temperature. Yeah. Three degrees, a lot, of, like most scientists or experts that I've read sort of think that three degrees is where you start to see societies really breaking down, just it's to the pressure from sort of, yeah, the pressure on infrastructure, the costs on rebuilding after storms and floods, drought relief, fires, people seeking asylum coming from places that are, you know, being flooded or inundated or, yeah. you know, all of those sort of pressures on society will start to be too much and they say that sort of society as we know it will not be able to function anymore. We'll start to see worldwide chaos. Yeah. And four degrees, I've seen a map of what the world could look like or sort of what would be inhabitable regions of the world at four degrees and there's not much that's habitable I think like in Australia maybe Tasmania (laughs) yeah most of the world isn't habitable at four degrees it's hard to know I mean obviously that's habitable with the world operating as we've known it I guess there's always people who'll say well we'll invent technologies that will allow us to live in deserts and Mm. live you know do all those sorts of things underwater Yeah, what we sort of currently define as habitable climates will not exist in a lot of the world. And one scientist, Kevin Anderson, from the Tyndall Centre in the UK, which is one of the leading climate sort of think tanks, he said a few years ago that if we reach four degrees, he finds it hard to see how more than a billion people might survive four degrees. Mm. And another sort of IPCC author repeated that after him. And, I, you know, I sort of saw that and looked around to see, well, someone's going to say this is alarmist or crazy and nobody, no scientists spoke up and said this is at the extreme end. No one refuted that. Yeah. And then five degrees is the same as between now and the last ice age. So if you sort of try and think of the difference that the world went through between the last ice age and now and how, I mean, that was hugely disruptive and for that to happen in a period of 100 years, I think nobody really knows what havoc that could reach, yeah. sort of reap on the world. So those are sort of what the numbers mean and we're currently tracking to hit, yeah, two degrees before the middle of this century. Yeah. I was at dinner with uh, David Crowley, who's one of our sort of leading climate scientists last year, and 
he said that he sort of thinks if we don't change anything, then we'd reach five degrees by the end of this century. Yeah. So it's pretty sobering. <laughs> it is. Like, even it's as really you're saying it now, I can feel it on my chest. Yeah. Like, when the penny kind of dropped for you about mm. this, like, what was the immediate impact on you? I was always sort of fairly passionate and I understood climate change pretty well, far more than the average person. Yeah. From like the age of 12, I was really interested in it. But I didn't, the penny didn't drop in that sense of like what those temperatures mean and how quickly we're tracking towards them. I think I became aware of that in about 2007 when I started hearing reports on predictions and I decided to read a book called Climate Code Red, which really... I mean, it's a bit old now and some of the developments in the science have changed, but generally not for the better. (laughs) But it's still a really good explainer of just how the climate systems work and and what it means and how everything is sort of, it's a complex system and it explains it for the layperson pretty well. And when that dropped for me, my son, who's now 14, was about three. And I think, you know, I was just, yeah, really, really devastated. I, you know, that grief you were talking about, I just cried all the time. I um, I really couldn't stop crying. And I, I, it was quite a few months that I was really dysfunctional. I remember one moment, I haven't really talked about this this much, but my sister-in-law was sitting next to me. We were looking at our kids playing because she's got a daughter who's just a few months older than my son. Yeah. So they were playing together and they were doing something and she made a comment about when they grow up and will they be a doctor or, you know, some comment the parents make around when their kids play a game. And, <laughs> and I just remember sort of looking at her and thinking, how can you mislead them into thinking they're going to have normal lives when they grow up? Like, you can't do that. You can't tell, you can't talk to them about their futures like that because we don't know what their futures are hold. I didn't say that, but inside I just felt like... Yeah. And I think that was the hardest thing for me was as a parent, just how do you parent kids when you know that their future is so uncertain? And are you honest with them about this future or do you hide it from them? When do you tell them? What do you say to them when they sort of hold you to account on it? And I think that was really the thing that motivated me in the end, that I just knew that it's bad enough facing that future if that future arises and my kids ask me what I did and I just say, well, it was all too hard for me to do anything. It felt like someone else's problem. I just gave up and hoped for the best. Yeah. I just don't really feel like that's a good enough answer. Yeah. So, yeah, that's sort of... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've got kids as well. And so in some ways it's like, yeah, what is the right age where it's not too traumatic for them mm. <laughs> to start to adopt it? Yeah, just what you're talking about then about, you know, you felt like you wanted to do something rather than saying it was too hard. You know, you mentioned at the Wheeler Centre a couple of people that you come across who'd basically given up and like mm. said that I don't believe that humanity has got the will or that people care enough or people understand the impact enough to do anything about it. Did that cross your mind? To yeah, it crosses my mind and it crosses my mind more and more. Yeah. I think that was 10 years ago and it felt more possible then than it does now to do something but I also feel like that's a bit of a choice as well until you are absolutely 100% certain that there is no chance of solving this problem and I think it's very hard to like whilst you know we all have to acknowledge it's pretty hard and dire and there's going to be lots of difficulties and we already know I mean people are already dying from weather events that are most likely made worse or even caused by climate change. So already people are suffering and more and more people are going to suffer. So we have to accept that and face that and process that for ourselves. But until I can say with 100% certainty that there is absolutely no hope left, then for me to give up hope is actually a choice. And for me, that's a moral choice. Like if I am choosing to give up, then I'm choosing to give up on my children. For me, it's a cop-out. Yeah. I feel like it, well, that's, you know, and, and it actually makes me angry when I think, yeah, you meet people who are perhaps have been activists for a long time or a lot of people in sort of the baby boomer generation who may perhaps protested against Iraq war and sort of had some sort of, you know, ideals that they felt were betrayed and, you know, now they just feel it's all too hard and they've already done, they feel weary, I think, of, mm. of just fighting another fight. And they sort of do, they haven't really given up, but 
it's an easier thing for them to say, oh, it's all too hard than actually to have to fight another battle, I think. Yeah. And I understand it, but I also feel like you just can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we all have to find our way to make a difference and be prepared to do it. And it is going to mean sacrificing time. It's going to mean sacrificing money. It's going to mean stepping outside our comfort zones, like all the things that human beings have fought for and won. They weren't delivered on a platter. Yeah. You know, and we have to make that choice to do that. And I think personally that I can't not do that. And I feel I would like more people to reflect on, Mm. you know, what are they going to do? And that weariness that you talked about that you've observed in some people. Are there things that you're doing to prevent that from happening to you as well, Mm. to sustain you for a a longer period of time? Yeah. 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 I'm conscious of it and I definitely feel it from time to time. And it's not just me. It's the whole, you know, climate movement. There is, Mm. there's a lot of grief counselling in the movement. There are a lot of sort of sessions um there's a great group called psychology for a safe climate and they've sort of taken on the role in the movement of trying to address this issue for activists running workshops on climate grief and yeah looking after yourself and sort of finding the ways to deal with that and I think you know for everyone it's different for me there's this sort of weird thing of part of the way that I cope with that grief is to be active and to do more. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously the more you do, the more you risk burnout. Yeah. So I don't have a silver bullet. I know a lot of people would say I work way too much. I haven't had a full holiday in four years. Yeah. I work six or seven days a week. Yeah, wow. So. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time I feel like I am I'm okay in that, like, I, I do compartmentalise my time. I'm getting better and better at, like, really just blocking out my time. And when it's home time, it's home time. Mm. And I think one of the surprising benefits of this work is that you just really appreciate the little things. Like, you know, just coming home to my kids and having that cuddle when you get home is, yeah. like, there's nothing better and you really appreciate it. And I don't feel the need for much more in my life to have meaningful work and good friends and a roof over my head and healthy, happy children and my husband and, you know, the rest of my family. Yeah. That really nourishes me. So, yeah, I think one of the blessings of this work is that you just really start to appreciate Mm. the amazing stuff that you do have in your life and you feel so lucky and privileged to have it right now. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like there's quite a lot of gratitude that mm. you have for those things. Yeah. yeah. And they say gratitude makes you happier. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the way you chose to try and influence? Mm. Maybe it's been a bit of a journey, but yeah, particularly yeah. around the work that a climate for change does mm. now. Yeah. yeah. So I think when I had that moment, so my thought process was, I sort of went into this despair. I was really dysfunctional for a long time. And then the first thought that got me out of that dysfunction was, well, have I given up hope? And when I realised that I hadn't, then I just realised that I just had to focus on, well, what do I do? And I had to just do everything I could. And that sort of lifted me out of the despair. But then there was this real thing of like, well, what the hell can I do? Mm. I mean, who am I? I'm nobody really. I'm not a politician. I'm not a billionaire. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a you know spokesperson or what on earth could I possibly do that seems big enough to fix this problem and that was a much harder thing to work out but I guess the first step was just realizing that the problem is just now so big that the only way that we can possibly fix it is through massive systemic changes I mean the first easy steps easy (laughs) easier steps are you know just changing our energy system over to renewable energy we need to rethink the way that we do agriculture the way that we design buildings and cities transport like every sort of yeah system in our society needs to be rethought and restructured and renewed which provides for a whole lot of amazing opportunities But they're massive changes and they have to be done really quickly and there's just no way that any personal changes I do in my life, like, you know, buying 
a green product or recycling or composting or even, you know, putting solar panels on my roof isn't really going to make that big systemic change. The only institution that can really drive that change at the speed and scale that we need is government. Mm. And so when I realised that, then I just realised that, you know, when I'm looking at where I can spend my time, the most powerful thing I can do is work to influence what our government does. And obviously there are things I can do as an individual. Voting is super important. And my immediate realisation was that from that point on, I could not vote for a party that wasn't committed to doing what is needed to stay below two degrees. Yeah. And I had voted Labor until then and uh, that was the year that I moved to voting for the Greens. I mean, I would say to people, you have to look at who your candidates are and what they represent. And, I mean, if there's an independent that's got a really strong policy, then yeah. you know, that's probably the best place to go. So that was the first thing. But there are other ways that people can, we call it stand up, obviously writing to members of parliament. So recently I went to visit my local member and he just said, you know what, it's great that you came, but it's really not going to make much difference unless I'm hearing from a lot of people. Like he said, I'm sympathetic, but I'm not going to be able to take this or do much with this unless there's a real outcry. And to be honest with you, the last few months I received over 5,000 letters from people about live animal exports. And look, things are changing. I haven't received one letter about climate change. Mm. So how am I going to do anything? So I think, you know, making a noise and making a fuss and actually voicing that, and it's really hard with climate change because it's such a long issue, things like animal exports or whatever, they come up, there's a big flaring moment and then everyone gets on board with it. But, you know, it's just a constant thing. Like literally, you know, even if it's just sending a postcard every month just saying, just reminding you I'm still here and I still care, like that's how you just, you don't have to make an argument, you just Mm. have to show them that's what you care about. That's their job is to represent you and... Like they need to know what you care about in order to do that. So I think that's a really important thing. People can join political parties and actually influence their platform. And I think if anyone is like a a liberal voter, then that's probably a really powerful thing that can be done because I don't think the Liberal Party is going to come on board with climate change unless there's a real refreshing of the people in the Liberal Party and their policies. And that requires, like apparently the average age of a Liberal Party member is like 65 or 75. So, Mm. you know, young people who identify as Liberal need to join the party and change their policies. So there's lots of ways to engage with democracy. But then I think the other thing I realised was that's all well and good, but it's not going to be enough unless enough people do it. That's what democracy depends on. And we're lucky our system actually, it's easy to feel frustrated at the moment, but it's actually a pretty good system. And if we use it properly, it does work. I think one of the problems is we've got cynical about it, so we've stopped engaging with it and using it. And actually the answer to being frustrated is not to disengage, it's actually to reclaim the democracy and use that. And so we need lots more people doing it. Our sort of motto at Climate for Change is that the two most powerful things you can do are stand up and voice, you know, put tell your members what you want and you know, have that voice in your democracy, but then also go and reach out to as many people as possible, help them to understand this issue, understand what they can do about it and encourage them to do something. And so that's sort of what our, our work is more around the reaching out side of things because there are already organisations that do a lot of campaigning and, and work around that help you to stand up, but there's no organisation that helps people to have better conversations about climate change. So that's a very long, (laughs) very long way of telling you what we do, (laughs) which is to help people, yeah, have better conversations with people about the issue and what they can do about it. Yeah. I think, um, like, one of the things you talked about was because it's such, it's a problem on a bigger time scheme, I guess, and relatively slow moving, although in terms of climate change over the course of the history of the planet. It's very fast-moving, but in mm. terms of the human life scale, yeah. sometimes it's slow-moving. I think, you know, I, I guess most people in Australia, I'm presuming, would agree that climate change is a thing. Mm. What do you think is the reason why they're not kind of doing something about that or feeling the urgency? Yeah. yeah. I think there's a number of things. I think so people are knowledgeable about climate change, but they're not climate literate, which I think is that, 
you know, that thing I was talking about earlier around the degree, like what, what does 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees mean? You know, like when they hear those numbers, yes, they know bad things are happening, the climate's getting worse, it's going to mean more extreme weather, but it's not very specific, like how much more extreme, what's that going to mean for me, for the things I care about, for the rest of the world? And I think there's probably a sense that, well, even if it gets bad, we'll be able to fix it. Or, in, you know, it might get bad for a while, but then when you realise that actually, and because it is that slow-moving, sort of slowish moving system, yes, we might be able to return things back to a safe climate, but not in any human sort of lifetimes or yeah. on a human scale. So when people realise that actually how little time we've got to prevent sort of really quite apocalyptic outcomes, yeah, I think there are... A number of reasons why people sort of perhaps don't get or feel the urgency or act in a way that is commensurate with that, which I guess is sort of the question. One is I think people do have a general knowledge that the climate change is real, it's happening, it's bad, there are going to be really bad consequences, it's going to involve extreme weather, it's got something to do with greenhouse gases, fossil fuels, but we sort of talk at Climate for Change about climate literacy and people aren't really literate on, well, what does that actually mean in concrete terms for me, for the things I care about, for the rest of the world. So I think that's why we often do talk around those degrees to sort of comprehend that, what that sort of really does mean. Mm. And I think also a lot of people don't understand that this isn't something that we can allow to sort of get bad and then fix. Like there is a a point of no return really um, and we're fast approaching it. So I think once people really understand those things, yeah, as you say, the penny really drops. There is a real sense of urgency. So that's part of the work we do is just try to help people really get that. But then I think the other thing that means that sometimes people don't act in a way that even when they get that urgency don't necessarily act in that way. Partly is just sort of not knowing what on earth they can do. How Like yeah. it's actually very hard to really comprehend. If you're not going to sort of drop everything and become an activist and devote your whole life to it like I did, which I don't expect everyone to do. And in a way it would be sad if we all did that because, you know, then what are we fighting for if we stop everything that we care about? Yeah. Then... What do you do? And it's just very easy to just put it off another day, I guess, and put it off another day. And then as life takes over and the urgent things become more pressing, you can just sort of distance yourself from that reality. Like I know I've done that. Unless you keep it present for yourself and constantly, it's an active, like I think being hopeful, choosing to hope and then Maintaining that urgency and acting on it, it's an act that you have to sort of, it's, I read an article in the New York Times recently that talked about it as like a practice that you have to bring into your life. People have religious practice or they have their yoga practice, something that they do regularly to maintain that sort of connection with the thing that they care about or that sort of state of mind and to enact it in their lives. And I think we actually need to start to think about climate action in that way that it has to be something you consciously bring into your life that you make time for, allocate time for on a regular basis and sort of do some regular actions around it, which are really, one is just maintaining that connection through reading and being informed. You don't have to be super, super knowledgeable. You don't have to be an expert, but just to sort of keep abreast of it and keep connected to the issue. So that some of the practice has to be around that and the rest of the practice I think has to be on being an active citizen in your democracy, which involves, yes, yeah, standing up, voicing, you know, putting pressure on someone with the power to make the difference, whether it's your local member, a council member, the media, a company that's going to invest, you know, a bank that might be supporting a fossil fuel project or something to really sort of make your voice heard and then reach out to others. I think those are the three fundamental parts of that practice that we need to try and sort of bring into our lives whether it's weekly, fortnightly, monthly, but allocate time in our lives to do that. Yeah. If other people want to bring in things like composting or, you know, I think those things are important. 
but, you know, depending on how much time, I think the, the key things are to make that system change. Mm. Yeah, I think that's what I try and encourage people to do in their lives. And, and it really, I, like, I really, I'm, a, I'm very much one of those people who likes to-do lists and calendars, <laughs> and I really actually think the way to treat it is to look at your calendar and say, okay, every Sunday at 10 o'clock I spend an hour writing a letter or I doing some sort of action or at 7 p.m. on a Wednesday I make sure I read my climate stuff or, you know, just block out a few times in your diary, whether it's weekly, fortnightly, monthly, that and sort of just do something that's getting informed, standing up or reaching out yeah. in those times. And even that would just make a huge difference. Yeah. So I guess I'm making a bit of a leap or asking a question here. In the two things that you're talking about there about increasing literacy and then I guess each person finding their own way to mm. help influence systemic change. Yeah. Are they the two things that are climate for change? Are they the two problems that you go down? Yeah, so I think to be specific about the work that we've done so far, our main program is, has you sort of stolen the Tupperware party yeah. approach. So, I mean, there's no plastic, there's no financial <laughs> incentives like they use, but... We get hosts to invite their friends over to their house. We send a trained facilitator to sort of run an event that takes about two to two and a half hours. And at the end of that event, we ask everyone in the room to host the next one so that we can, yeah, reach people who wouldn't necessarily go to an event like the Wheeler Centre events, but will come to their friend's house and to sort of grow a rate that was potentially going to match the speed of change that we need. And in those sessions, the climate literacy is pretty key like we that is part of one of our objectives in those sessions you know and then we try and help people sort of go through that thought process of seeing that government is really key to this change and that we do need to engage it's not saying we don't do other things whether it's personal or whether there's something in your career or you know if you're a passionate yeah like you're a podcaster or you know you work at an architectural agency or you know work at council there's lots of ways we can we all have our own specific way that we can influence change but I think in a general sense we are all citizens and we can all stand up and reach out so I think that is our key message at the end is that you know we all need to just incorporate that into our lives as a matter of practice as something we do all the time and then in terms of what we help people do it is more around the reaching outside of things like Obviously, the easiest way is to host their own conversation, but we're also trying to develop other resources that help people do that, from workshops on how to have better conversations to downloadable questions that you can ask your friends to encourage a good conversation, like, yeah, a whole lot of different resources that help people have better conversations. Yeah. I'd like to hear a few of your, maybe a couple of stories that have come out through those conversations Mm. of, of some impacts that have had, but... I think conversations, and it's probably the, one of the key reasons why I do this podcast, like conversations are my favourite thing and I think they're incredibly powerful if they are well done. So I'm interested in that as well, like how can we have better conversations mm. and um, what are some of the stories that have come yeah, out from sure. the work that you've done? Yeah, I mean, it's hard actually. Like I, I know a lot of what I'm meant to do in a good conversation. I can't say that I always do it or even do it most of the time. It's actually, it's really hard to break old habits. And I think whether it's instinct or whether we're trained, we're trained to sort of argue rather than, you know, have a good dialogue. I often think how different the world would be if at school instead of teaching debating and persuasive writing we were taught good conversation and active yeah. listening, active and reflective listening, asking curious questions. Those are the ingredients of a really good conversation. And I think it sort of sounds counterintuitive, but in a way to have the most productive conversation, you've got to let go of an outcome. Yeah. If you are trying to persuade someone, they know it. And as soon as someone feels like someone's trying to persuade them, they dig their heels yeah. in so hard. That's right. You've just got to really genuinely seek to understand that person and maybe help them understand themselves and their own thinking. You know, I think that that's what conversation does. It allows us to explore ideas, think them through. And if you create a space and an environment through the conversation that doesn't feel judging, Mm. that allows someone to actually 
think through an issue and potentially change their mind or see it from a different angle. But, and they actually feel like that was a really exciting outcome of the conversation rather than they yeah. somehow were tricked or they, you know, then that, that's I, really... I win. Yeah, other, like yeah. if it's not, if you treat the conversation not as trying to convince someone or win but just as a mutual exploration of ideas where you're really trying to nut out mm. what they mean... I think that's sort of the very first thing and, and some of the tools to do that are, first of all, really focusing on listening, not talking back. If someone says something that you don't agree with, don't argue back. Just even don't say anything, just nod and let them talk. But if they don't talk, then, you know, there are ways you can sort of try and reflect back what you think you heard they say said and ask them to clarify or explain it further you know, that really lets a lot of stuff sort of evolve. And then I think there's a point at which if someone's sort of saying something that doesn't really make sense to you or that you disagree with, instead of trying to come back with a rebuttal, see if you can find a question that explains the inconsistency or the, the thing that's not working for you. Yeah. Because often then they'll sort of go, oh, yeah, actually that doesn't really work, does it? Or they'll explain, well, I, you know, I'm actually not saying this, I'm saying this, and it changes the whole Meaning, like, I remember once I was, if you were talking about stories, there was a a focus group I did early on when we first started, before we started running our conversations, we just did some focus groups. The, you know, there's more stories about that, but on one time I remember people were talking about how the carbon tax came up and, oh, yeah, we pay too much tax and blah, 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 and people were sort of really you know, anti-tax and... Being someone who actually believes tax is a pretty important thing, my normal reaction in a conversation would be to argue that point. But as a facilitator of a focus group, that was not my role. I couldn't argue. But I did want to clarify that. So I sort of said, oh, that's, that's really interesting that you're saying that because you're all saying that we pay too much tax. But earlier in the conversation, you were also saying that we need better education and better health, better roads and... I've always understood that the way that we get those is through our taxes. So I'm curious to understand how you suggest we're going to pay for those things if we're not paying tax. And they immediately turned around and said, oh, well, no, no, it's not that we don't agree with tax. It's just that we don't trust our government to be spending our taxes on the right thing. And then that changed the whole conversation and yeah. you know, allowed that conversation to go in a completely different direction than if I had just argued the point. Yeah. So I think if you can turn objections into questions in a conversation, it's really, really powerful. Yeah. I'm going to prompt you for another story yeah. if you've got any, but what, um, is there a conversation that you facilitated or that you know of where it's just been, uh, a, I mean, a more memorable or remarkable one mm. for some reason? Yeah, I mean, there's a few stories that have come out. I think the one that's top of my mind right now is... I facilitated a conversation for a friend of mine and she invited some friends over and one of the participants seemed quite excited and and that was great and she hosted her own and, you know, that felt pretty, like it was a good conversation, it felt pretty positive but not extraordinary. But I actually had no idea what was going on for her. Six months later I was in Brisbane because we've, expanded to Brisbane and I was up there doing some training and I walked into the office of another environmental organisation, much, much bigger one, because they'd offered me a desk there for the day. And she was there, my host was there, and she'd moved to Brisbane and she had worked as a consultant in the sort of corporate sector and she'd quit that and she was volunteering full-time or doing this sort of internship, unpaid internship with this other organisation and she basically changed her whole life. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, she's now like there. They've made a little video with her talking about why she's, she cares and they're sending that all. It's part of their election campaign. And Yeah. You know, I actually had no idea that that it had that effect on her, but yeah, she was really excited. She was saying, "Oh, you're the, you're you know the one that changed this oh, for wow. me." So yeah, that was pretty exciting. And there've been a few other stories of people who yeah have sort of gone in potent yeah without yeah with that general sort of sense. Oh yeah, this is an important issue, but there are lots of important issues, and come out sort of realizing you know this is really important. I have to do something, and all of a sudden having never 
Yeah, even after the Wheeler Centre, actually, someone came up to me and said, I was one of those people. I, you know, I didn't know really anything before. I went to a conversation just last week and I didn't know anything and now I'm so passionate and I'm going to do everything I can. So I think there are probably more of those stories than we're aware of. That's the trouble with our work is you don't always, it's hard to capture. Yeah. And often the, you know, often people think of it on it for a little while and then they make those changes and they don't always tell you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you discover by accident. So yeah. I'm hopeful that there are more stories than we know about. Um, there are a couple of others that haven't happened in conversations, but people involved in the organisation as staff or volunteers, particularly trained facilitators, I guess have been encouraged by the philosophy of the organisation and by the skills that they've developed through training to have conversations in their own lives with people around them. And, yeah, at least three that I know of where there have been relatives who uh, were, you know, on the denial side of things who were sceptical and have moved along and sort of, I mean, one of them was even us. One of our long-standing facilitators who's now a trainer, her dad, yeah, she couldn't talk about this at all with him when I first met her and it was very emotional for her and he's become really passionate and has recently been asked to stand for the Greens. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's a pretty cool story. I mean, I don't think it's all us. Obviously, there's part of just that, you know, her being so passionate and that close connection with her dad that has, you know, I don't think it was all of us, but she certainly feels that, you know, the training and the work she's done with us has enabled those conversations. And, he, yeah, he's attended a couple of our conversations as well. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. there's some pretty cool stories. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I guess family members are probably the hardest to talk to mm. in many ways. For yeah. many reasons, but, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. can be really hard. I've got one more question yeah. for you as we finish up. And um, it's about, I guess, drawing back to yourself and reflecting on the theme of the podcast, which is subtle disruption and this idea that we can all make a small change and in aggregate that can Mm. add up to something big, which in many ways feels like it's at the heart of the work that you're doing. But thinking about something small that you do in your own life, what you've done in your own life that's had a really important impact or that sustains you or is a practice in Mm. some way, is there something that comes to mind when I ask you that? Um, Well, I guess I think that, the thing that originally sort of motivated me to start Climate for Change was when I was sort of desperately doing every possible thing I possi- you know, possibly could from driving less and using cloth nappies on my kids to, you know, volunteering and door knocking and just went into this sort of insane, frantic mode that I see a lot of people go into trying to do everything. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and then it got to, I think it was the 2010 election... Yeah, which was the one that, you know, had the hung parliament that put through the carbon tax. And that was the year that I had decided that I couldn't vote for a party that wasn't committed to what we really needed on climate. So I made a really big, it's quite a big decision for me to, you know, change my vote. And then I made an even bigger decision to actually just tell absolutely everyone I knew what I was doing and why I was doing it and ask them to do the same, which is a pretty outrageous thing to do in our society. I mean, you're not even meant to yeah. say who you vote for, let alone ask people to do that. Yeah. Um, but I was just feeling so desperate that I, like I wrote a letter and I literally sent it to pretty much everyone on my mailing list, or not mailing list, but it was, I didn't, it wasn't an organisation back then, but in my address book. <laughs> yeah. And I had run a small business prior to doing that, so I still had all these ex-clients that I hardly knew on my address book, and I emailed all of them. <laughs> I was just like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> and nobody was angry. Maybe one or two people wrote back saying, oh, I'd prefer not to get these emails, but in a nice way, many, many more people wrote back saying, oh, wow, can you tell me more about this? I don't really understand about climate change or I don't really understand, like, what the different policies of the different parties are or I don't really understand. Like, a lot of people don't understand how preferential voting works in Australia, so they think that if they vote for a minor party or an independent that they're splitting the vote and Mm. could risk a party 
they, you know, the party they don't want winning, which is, that's how, you know, America works. It's not how Australia works at all. You can vote for whoever you want to and then if they don't get in, your vote gets distributed to your next preference. So, yeah. you know, that's something that's unique to Australia and it's pretty, like, we're really lucky to have it, but yeah. a lot of people don't understand it. So I had great conversations around that. And then at that election, I remember my mum changed her vote. She talked to my grandma and my grandma, who was like in her late 80s and had voted Liberal all her life, voted Greens in the Senate, <laughs> which was huge. Yeah. My mother-in-law, I'm pretty sure, voted Green. And it was actually like she had been a sort of a Labor supporter all her life and really passionate about the Labor Party and could tell she felt it was painful. She, like mm. she felt like she was betraying them, but... She, you know. Changing footy teams, kind yeah, of. Yeah, except that it's not her who's betraying them; it's them who's betraying her. So, yeah. <laughs> her sister also actually ended up putting a Greens placard in her window yeah. in a very liberal voting area. So, all these people I knew changed their votes and even spoke out about it. And yeah, we didn't change the world, but. That's when I started thinking, well, what if everyone who felt like I do, like there's, you know, polling shows it's at least 20% of the population, probably a bit more than that, who feel really passionate about this issue. What if everyone had done that and had that effect at an election? Mm. We'd be there. That's all it would take. Yeah. Yeah, so that's sort of what motivated me to start Climate for Change. And it's probably still the most, well, maybe not the most impactful thing I've done, but... Still ranks up there. Yeah. Yeah. Kat, thanks so much for no, taking thank you. the time to chat. It's always fun doing these things. Oh, that's good. <laughs> it's and great. It's inspiring the work that you're doing and really encouraging as well. So, thank you. Yeah, appreciate thank you. it. Um, yeah. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests on this show. So if you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app or on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now.